In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary. We don't know the contrast organically. Welcome back, folks. This is veteran, or I'm sorry, Jesus. <laughs> I almost went into the old intro. This is Meditations in Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. You are listening to the Progressive Radio Network. You can find me here every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. That's 11 a.m. on the West Coast. So, today, we don't have a guest Purposely, I didn't even ask anyone this week. I figured I would ramble on about a few different issues. And then I, it almost completely slipped my mind with as many things that are going on in the world that the UK would be holding the Brexit vote on Thursday. This was last Thursday. So a lot has happened since then. But let's just, let's cut to the chase here. I think that's the most important thing we could do. Because there's a lot of static out there right now. And, as I've seen on my Facebook page and as I've read online and social media outlets, mainstream media outlets, And all of the typical liberals, of course. My favorite being Fareed Zakaria, who, in my thinking, outside of, let's say, Thomas Friedman from the New York Times, represents the very worst of liberalism. The very worst of what that limited and failed ideology has produced. He personifies it, Zakaria and the liberals. And then the legions of leftists and progressives who think, act, and perceive the world as liberals. So, of course, the cry from the soft left and from Zakaria and the liberals around the world the media elites and those who identify with their messaging is that everyone who voted or the vast majority of the people who voted for Brexit are a bunch of xenophobic, racist idiots. That's the messaging. And people are starting to pick up on it, thankfully. Thankfully, there are more and more people around the world, including in Europe and the United States, who are beginning to question and who fundamentally distrust 
the liberal media as they should. As they should, of course. Why shouldn't they? You see, folks, this is what the entire 2016 election has been all about. Now, the mainstream media is just now starting to, and let me add also, the political and economic elites around the world are just now catching on to the fact that many people in the industrialized world, including the 30 to 40,000 people who recently marched in Okinawa, Japan, opposing U.S. militarism and Western militarism and U.S. empire, including the millions in France who are protesting their socialist government's labor market reforms, austerity measures, anti-union, anti-worker measures, to the hundreds of thousands of students who, are, who have been protesting in Canada against not only budget cuts, but hike increases and hikes in the cost of obtaining an education to the millions of people in the United States, most notably the Occupy movement and other anti-austerity movements, many of whom culminating in the Bernie Sanders campaign, electorally speaking, in 2016. People around the Western world are revolting. The Brexit being the latest, particularly in the European context. And as Jack Rasmus points out, and I'm going to post his comments from his radio program on the Progressive Radio Network. I suggest checking it out. In my opinion, Jack Rasmus is one of the best in the business and probably one of the most easy-to-understand economists in the world, especially, say, for those of us who aren't professionally trained economists. Jack will break things down in a way that I think anyone who's decently educated and aware and conscious could understand. And you know, the point he's making is the point that a lot of other people on the left have been trying to make as well. Namely, that there is a class element to all of this and that the driving antagonism is not religious intolerance as is so often cited in, say, the case of the Middle East or racism, say, that's cited in the case of Donald Trump supporters here in the United States. Or, now, the argument that's used against the British voters that... They are simply a bunch of xenophobic racists, ignorant, uneducated, sort of dumbass people. 
you know, this is the same thing we've been hearing throughout 2016. Remember, folks, and I'm going to harp on this because the parallels are quite clear. This is the same thing we, we, we've been hearing about Donald Trump supporters. Though, as Nate Silver and others from various outlets, but particularly 538, who's done extensive studies on Trump supporters, point out, many of his supporters, in fact, are quite wealthy, come from the top one-tenth of one percent. Yes, he has supporters in the quote-unquote middle class and also among particularly white men, white working class to poor men, the vast majority of whom live in suburban areas and rural areas. But that leaves out the class element. This is what blows my mind about the left today. And it's not obviously not just in the United States, unfortunately. Unfortunately, a lot of what is toxic and unproductive on the left in the United States is also taking place on the left in Europe, on the left in Australia, and so on. Part of what's wrong is this sort of postmodern identity politics that dominates everything. And I, we've seen it over and over and over again does this manifest in different ways in the material world, particularly in the political world. We saw it with regard to Obama in 2007 and 2008 and indeed throughout his, what now, seven and a half years in office. We saw it in the campaign between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton a constant focus on race, whereas the real conversation, of course, was a generational conversation and also a class conversation, a conversation about generational schisms, a conversation about political ideologies, a conversation about a sort of disaffected youth and deindustrialized zones throughout the United States that largely voted for Sanders, places like the state of Michigan and Indiana, to name two. But the media didn't focus on that. And in fact, much of the left played into the dominant narrative pushed by the mainstream media. The idea that Sanders supporters were just a bunch of angry young white men. And that Clinton supporters really symbolized the sort of multicultural future that the liberals want to believe in so bad. And that's not to say, of course, that there's anything wrong with multiculturalism. That's to say that we should move beyond multiculturalism. What is the next step after multiculturalism? Or maybe not even after multiculturalism, since multiculturalism obviously doesn't exist. I hear this from people in urban areas in the United States who say, oh man, you know, we live in this multicultural um, society and it's amazing. We live in the city. I mean, especially in a place, say, like Chicago, 
we're talking about the most segregated city in the United States. Don't tell me it's some cosmopolitan multicultural existence. Maybe for a fraction, a, a small sliver of society, maybe. For the vast majority of us, I don't think so. That multicultural cosmopolitan society that Fareed Zakaria and the liberals want to believe in so much is the same multicultural cosmopolitan society that the liberals and Zakaria have been pushing within the context of a neoliberalization of society. And for a, for a movement in the United States and for activists in the United States who so often talk about privilege, oh, how privileged the professional class has been that voted to remain in the European Union. Thinking of a city like London, for instance, if, you've, if anyone out there has ever been to London, and I can't say I've spent much time there, but enough time to recognize what the hell was going on on the street, and it didn't take much to figure that out. <laughs> Not when you're staying in an apartment that's less than 2,000 square feet and it costs 8,000 pounds a month. 8,000 pounds a month to rent. Well, when you experience those things, when you walk down the street and you notice rich, white Europeans and Brits enjoying $12 cups of coffee and, or 12-pound cups of coffee and 12-pound beers, and then you go to a different part of London and you see and even more dense living situations, vast swaths of refugees, worker, low-income workers, homeless population, primarily in the neighborhood I'm thinking of, Sri Lankan, Indian. I remember walking around in 2014 saying, well, this country, of all of the countries... that I've been to outside of the United States reminds me the most of the United States. And for obvious reasons, historical reasons, we don't need to go into those. I mean, everyone understands, obviously, we're a British offshoot country, but 200 and X amount of years removed. Very interesting to me just how similar the two countries were and how much they remind me of one another. And how, no matter, and, and, and that no matter how cosmopolitan the people of London wanted to see themselves as being, it was only the professional class, the elites, the upper class, and economically mobile citizens in London that were living those lifestyles. Working-class white Londoners were not living that lifestyle, are not living that lifestyle. They can barely afford their rent. 
And look at the regions, as Rasmus points out, and as I was looking at when the results were coming in, look at the regions that voted to leave the EU. Former industrialized regions. You know, I wrote an article, and I mentioned this to a, in a comment that I was writing to a friend on social media. But, you know, I wrote an article, I think, a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago. Oh, maybe, I don't, geez, I can, time is crazy. Maybe, let's say a year to a year and a half ago, about French elections in which Le Pen and the National Front received more support in many areas than they had ever received. What were these areas? These areas weren't in the city, no. They were areas where people had been the most affected by not only the Socialist Party's austerity measures and horrific policies under Hollande and others, but also de decades and decades long of a systemic deindustrialization, cutting of benefits, cutting of jobs, stagnant wages for decades, and a particular crisis, or, or especially, let's say, since 2008. And this is the bigger context. And this is the context that's missing from the dominant conversation right now. It's not surprising that that conversation is missing. But that's the bigger context. The bigger context is the economic freefall that has taken place since 2008. Low growth, people are hurting, austerity measures, attacks on unions, and so forth. And that's the, so that's the bigger economic context, this context of free trade agreements, really authoritarian economic mechanisms, the financialization of the economy, London, places like London symbolize that financialization of the economy as much, if not more, than anywhere else in the world. And again, to draw a parallel to what's happened in the United States, look at the support that someone like Bernie Sanders and John, Donald Trump have received this year, these last couple of years, well, a year and a half now. Almost a year and a half. And people continue, people on the left, progressives, and let's just say regular folks who aren't even politically engaged because I've heard it from them as well. Continue to go after Donald Trump supporters. Bernie Sanders supporters were attacked by many liberal elites in the United States, the New York Times, the Washington Post, all of these oh-so-credible and sophisticated. That's, these are my favorite folks are the, the so-called credible and sophisticated liberals, the liberal elites, the professional class that constantly steers the conversation. Yet who is wrong at every turn? <laughs> this is the amazing part, right? So 
constantly people listen to these so-called credible sources like the New York Times or the Washington Post, CNN, let's say, in the cable media world. PBS is a great example. PBS might be the best example of how liberal ideology works. And we can see that ideology at play with the Brexit. It's very interesting. It, it reminds me of the 2008 bailout, which, as many people have pointed out, some economists say well, it was absolutely essential and immediate. I'm sorry, immediately essential, and others argue that it didn't need to happen. Others argue that it should have happened, but with more stipulations and so on. But we didn't get to debate that. We were told, as we're told now with the Brexit, that the sky is falling. That the world is on the verge of collapse, that the stock markets are in the markets, my God, the markets are in turmoil. Financial elites, the ultra-wealthy are freaking out. The political establishment can't understand it. And then we have disempowered leftists, leftists who hold very little power anywhere in the world. Many of these people, my allies and friends, or as they say, or some say, comrades, beating up on the little guy who voted to leave the EU. And in what the exit polls have showed, actually not the majority thought, uh, uh, based their decision on immigration, but on sovereignty. They want to be able to make decisions for themselves. And within the EU and under the EU, and within those structures and those political and legal mechanisms, nation-state sovereignty is actually a very real issue that the left should de deal with. Just because ideologically the left doesn't like what the nation-state stands for, and I agree, of course, my God, as the rallying cry was 160 years ago, let's, you know, the, re the people of the world unite. Let's break down these artificial barriers, whether they be class, religion, ethnicity, gender, race, religion, nationality, and so forth. Sure, let's get rid of all of it. I'm fine with that. But until that happens, it doesn't mean that they don't exist. In other words, it would be great to not live in a nation state, but for right now, we live in nation states. I mean, some would argue that that structure has changed significantly. There's no, I don't think there's any doubting that. I don't think there's any questioning that. The corporate world and corporate entities, banks and corporations alike, wield state power and wield their own power through state mechanisms and the state apparatus in a way that is really un unseen in recent history and some would argue maybe in all of history. Okay, but I've heard people say, well, my God, who are these people, these leftists who support the Brexit you know, they're just a bunch of nation-state supporting nationalists, and they're so parochial, parochial and so on. And Again, I suggest taking a different view of the people who voted for the Brexit. If you're a leftist and you're actually interested in organizing people,
if you are actually interested, because this is interesting too. You know, the, the same crowd that argued to remain and the same crowd that has viciously gone after those of us who've maybe questioned the remain crowd or questioned um, whether or not the Brexit or Leave crowd had legitimate arguments or proposed that maybe they have, have been sort of viciously attacked, in my opinion. And I don't think any of that is helpful. Instead, we should be talking about this larger context that I'm speaking of during this program. Let's talk about the fact that the, cap the global capitalist economy is not working for the vast majority of people. Let's, uh, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the wars and militarism something that's been conveniently left out of the conversation as well. But this expands beyond Great Britain. I mean, what, what has been left out of the conversation about the refugee crisis in Europe, and we're going to have to make some clarifications, which I will in a second, um, when we're talking about the Brexit vote, but in the broader context of the refugee crisis in Europe, what is constantly left out of the mix, what's constantly left out of the conversation, is American and British and European wars in the Middle East and North Africa. People forget because we never talked about, we never properly discussed it. Not only in the United States, but around the Western world. Because if we properly discussed it, people would realize just what exactly their governments were responsible for. And that is over a million Iraqis dead. And we're just talking about the war in Iraq for right now. But we could expand this to Western Asia and talk about Af Afghanistan. We could talk about Pakistan. And we can go down the list. But let's talk about Iraq for a second. And let's talk about the fact that not only did over a million people die as a result of the invasion, illegal invasion and occupation, but let's talk about the fact that close to one half of Iraq's population within the first five years to seven years of the conflict were made refugees and left the country. Going where? Going largely to Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Egypt, causing further tensions in areas that were already experiencing political upheaval, economic downturn, militarization, authoritarian governments, and ecological devastation. Those things were already happening in countries like Syria and Egypt prior to the war in Iraq and then prior to the aftermath and the immediate aftermath, let's say in the first five years after that war was launched. Then you add the war in Afghanistan and the occupation of Afghanistan, the destru complete destruction of that country, a war again that we don't talk about, 
a war that Zakaria and the liberals and the cosmopolitans and the professional class who support the institutions like the EU, institutions like NATO, institutions like the IMF and the World Bank. The people who support these institutions are the same idiots who, and the same maniacs who supported the wars. And what else did they support? Supporting author authoritarian elements in the Middle East and in North Africa. And then what? As the EU is also finding out now, supporting the destruction of Libya, getting rid of Gaddafi without a plan to replace his government. Not that one could plan and not that a country or a group of countries from outside of the sovereign nation that is being destroyed should plan of what happens. But the reality is, once Gaddafi was gone, country disintegrated. Now, if anywhere in the world is a safe haven for radical terrorist organizations and groups and individuals that might, could, and will probably inflict harm on people in Europe or elsewhere in the world, it's Libya. I think we have to keep all of this in mind as we grapple with what the Brexit means. And not to mention, of course, we let's, let's also back up here. Let's remember, and I probably, maybe I should have, but as folks who listen to this program understand, I jump all over the place. Hopefully you can draw the lines and the connections so I don't have to always in an explicit manner. But I should have mentioned maybe initially that let's not forget that the actual processes will last maybe up to two years, actually more than two years from now, because the British Parliament must vote. So the Parliament still has to vote on the measure, and they're going to cite Article 50 of the EU Charter. Then under that article, if they get the votes, which people are estimating will take place sometime in September or October, then they have two years to negotiate what the exit would look like and how it would be structured. If they cannot reach negotiations or reach, I'm sorry, reach an agreement vis-a-vis -vis the negotiations within the time limit of two years, then Britain and the, and, and I'm sorry, Great Britain would be automatically re-entered into the EU. So that's right off the bat here. Uh, let's see if this even happens. That's number one. So we'll do number one 31 minutes into the program. Undoubtedly, other EU nations will vote on similar measures. That much we know. Why? Because neoliberal capitalism is failing throughout Europe. And what's interesting, it, when people said that there, it was largely because of immigration and so everybody's just racist against Muslims and Arabs in, in Great Britain, the reality is the majority of those immigrants and refugees 
but I'm mostly now we're speaking of immigrants, and I'm sorry we're talking specifically to be clear here in Great Britain. The majority of the immigrants and the migrant workers are actually from Eastern Europe. And that's been causing and a, and a cause of tension. And as Rasmus points out in his recent program, having that large of an influx of migrant workers is actually quite economically destabilizing for working class people. Now, people understand this in Rust Belt areas and in towns and cities in the United States where, say, uh, construction industry provided a decent paying job for many of the people who live there, primarily men. You can see that in the United States. There are people who are paying immigrants five bucks an hour to do BS landscaping jobs, but landscaping jobs that take a lot of a lot of effort that are very difficult in very hot weather, people being paid under minimum wage, largely Mexican workers in this area, in a region a deindustrialized region where for generations people were used to making union wages with benefits and you know retirement health care and so forth now they can't find a job because of deindustrialization they look for those sort of local labor jobs that are labor intensive jobs that used to at one time exist only to come to a job site to see a bunch of foreign workers. And, of course, this person gets upset. I don't think there's anything surprising about that. And Rasmus, in great detail, points out why that's been the case. I can't harp enough on his recent dispatches. They're, they're excellent. But I don't think that's hard to understand. So the context in Europe is a shift to the right ideologically and politically among all of the social democratic parties. So that shift to the right means what? People will always choose, as they do with the candidates, if they're given a choice between conservative and conservative light, more often than not, they will choose the genuinely conservative option. I don't see how that's any different than what just happened in, in Great Britain. People were given two not so great options. What option did they choose? They chose the option that was sort of, in their view, a radical break from the norm. Instead of sticking with the EU, the EU that has aided and caused the neoliberalism that they're living under has, has guaranteed through its legal mechanisms that those options were the only economic options that countries could take within the European Union, as Greece and Portugal and Spain and Italy found out. And as the Italian government and the German government and the French government right now continue to push 
neoliberal policies, not only increased financialization, but also more and more austerity measures. So the same institution that produced the massive immigration, an institution that's becoming increasingly militarized, an institution that's becoming and has capitulated and will continue to capitulate to U.S. hegemony in the Middle East, in North Africa, and throughout the world. So that same institution, the same institution that destroyed Libya, that helped destroy Syria, that helped destroy Iraq, that helped destroy Afghanistan, that continues to help destroy Palestine, something also we shouldn't forget in this conversation, that same institution people are rejecting. They're saying, okay, it's either this bad option or this bad option, and the, the, the first bad option is the option that you've been living under for many decades now and that's been increasingly screwing you as the years go on. And let's not forget, folks, in Great Britain, we're talking about a place that just overtook the United States as the area in the Western world with the lowest social mobility rate. So if you're a young person living in Great Britain or a young person living in the United States or if you're an older person or a middle-aged person, it doesn't matter because the social mobility rate for everyone in those two places, in the United States and Great Britain, are the lowest in the industrialized world. And then we have all of this hypocritical and cynical condemnation of those who voted to leave on behalf of the liberal elites in the media especially. And even many on the left. How is any of this surprising in this context? It can't be surprising. I mean, if you're surprised by this, my friends, I mean, it's the same as when I'm talking to my leftist friends who live in Portland, who live in Northern California, who live in the Bay Area, who live in Seattle, who live in Burlington, Vermont, who live in Los Angeles, Chicago, New York. Many of the people who live in this area, and now I'm speaking anecdotally and through my own experiences, but I'm just saying many of the people who live in these areas that I spoke with during the last year and a half, they couldn't believe the rise of Donald Trump. They could not believe it. Why? I would argue because they don't spend enough time in reality. They don't hang out with working class regular people who already don't hold who don't already hold their views. This is a problem with the left. It's a big problem with the left. I mean, you can call people racists and ignorant morons all you want online. But when you actually have to sit down with working class people that are required for whatever political revolution, economic revolution, cultural revolution, etc., that movements around the world are supposedly interested in, if you think that's going to work, or if you think that's going to be implemented and not immediately reversed, or eventually reversed, as many of the the 
revolutions that have taken place, leftist revolutions have been and undid around the world. I, I don't know how people think that's going to happen when there are significant portions of the population that are virtually untouched by progressive institutions, progressive individuals, leftist culture, and so forth. Now, I think this has a lot to do with all, all sorts of things. I mean, not the least of which is this sort of culture of people surrounding themselves in so-called, now, there's nothing wrong with safe spaces as such, but this, you know, aversion to anyone who has different views or maybe people who would speak in a way that could be slightly offensive or so forth. I mean, people on the left have such thin skin and they live in such protected bubbles that it is no surprise to me that they were surprised and perplexed at the rise of Donald Trump and now perplexed at the Brexit vote. This is not surprising. It's unfortunate because we can expect this from the sort of liberal class, Fareed Zakaria, the Thomas Friedmans of the world, but not people who are genuinely interested in organizing poor and working class people. Activists and organizers who are primarily interested in organizing working class and poor individuals and communities should see these things as opportunities. Yes, they, they are challenges. Challenges are also opportunities. Is it going to be challenging reaching out to Trump supporters? Undoubtedly it will be challenging. Will it be challenging for leftists and organizers and activists in, say, urban areas like London to reach out to areas in less urbanized areas in Great Britain to organize folks? Wales, Newcastle. Can they reach out and, and, and effectively organize these communities? It's going to be essential. As I just recently was speaking with my friend Roberto about, you know, here in the United States, we have to organize working class whites, poor white people. There's no other way to be, I think, I think there's going to be no other way to be genuinely effective with much in this country if we don't start organizing at least significant sections of people who, would, who are supporting Donald Trump. That is my take. And this applies to Europe as well. So easy answers and easy explanations, as always, my friends, we have to reject them. We also have to reject the sort of pompous, classist analysis by Zakaria, Thomas Friedman, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the liberals and cosmopolitans and the professional class who largely hail from places like London, Washington, D.C., and the Beltway, and New York City, and so on. These are people who have been wrong for the last year and a half. They've been wrong for decades. Some would say they've been wrong from the beginning. They've been wrong again with regard to the Brexit. Not to mention, you know, some are saying that this might actually help Corbyn. 
because the conservative movement and the conservative party and the UKIP and Boris Johnson and all the different um, players in the conservative wing or the right wing of British politics are very divided right now. But as always, both parties are lost and they can't figure it out. Both the Labour Party and the Tories are lost as much, if not more so, or as much as the Democrats and Republicans. The people are angry and they are revolting. And And here, in this context, the left is missing. Just as in many ways it was missing during the campaign with Bernie Sanders, was unable to push him over the top, number one, and number two, was unable to push him to take more serious positions with regard to U.S. foreign policy. Because if there was one thing that Bernie Sanders could have done, if, if indeed, say, he got won the election, won the nomination, first of all, number two, won the election, the one place where he would have had a lot of pull was actually with regard to the U.S. empire. And that was the one thing, the elephant in the room, the major piece of his platform that was missing. And in the meantime, the left remains sort of unable to organize the very sections that we need to organize in order to win. Not to mention the many sort of racial and ethnic divides that exist as well. That's all stuff for another day. I didn't get to mention, real quick, because I'm going to play, I want to play a clip. It was, a, I believe, a parliamentarian uh, from Wales, I think. Member of Parliament from Wales. But we'll play that in a second. I just want to really mention something that's very interesting, because I mentioned this before. You know, does this, as Jack Rasmus mentioned, Maybe hint at a surprise for Clinton in 2016 could be. Are people that pissed off that they're just willing to vote for Trump because they've simply had enough um, with the perceived political class? We'll see. What's interesting, Bloomberg poll that came out four days ago of Sanders supporters right now, 55 only 55%, as I said, about one out of two, 55% of Clinton, uh, I'm sorry, 55% of Sanders supporters say they will vote for Clinton, 22% for Trump, 18% for Johnson. Jill Stein wasn't on that list. In the CNN poll, 57% said they'd vote for Clinton, only 8% for Trump, but 13% for Gary Johnson, the libertarian candidate, and 18% for Stein. So, as I mentioned before, and as I've seen throughout the campaign, I was assuming, and I think I'm about right off maybe by a few percentage points, but about one out of two of Sanders supporters will simply not be voting for Clinton. So we'll see how that plays out. Right now I want to play a quick, well, it's about a 10-minute clip, and then I'll have about a minute or two to end the program of this parliamentarian from Wales. Ten minutes ten, each. Ten minutes uh, Thank each. Um, the sheer utter dishonesty of the uh, Remain camp and the pro-EU camp in this debate, both before the vote and now after the vote, is simply breathtaking and was uh, captured uh, pretty succinctly by uh, Deputy Howland's uh, comments a few moments ago. 
uh, where uh, he and the Remain camp, much of the political elite and much of the media have tried to dishonestly characterise what is at stake uh, in this vote uh, by presenting a simplistic and utterly disingenuous narrative. And the narrative runs like this. Those uh, who are for Remain in the European Union are progressive, they're internationalist, they're anti-racist, uh, they're for democracy, peace and fairness. And those who support exit are reactionary, racist, nationalist, xenophobic. Uh, now, of course, there are absolutely vile, racist, nationalist and xenophobic forces in Britain who were prominent in the exit campaign and across uh, Europe uh, who we must oppose and must oppose resolutely and we must politically defeat them uh, at every turn. Uh, but the question is, uh, is the European Union the force uh, to do that? Or is it, in, for, in fact, the force that has contributed very significantly to the growth of those racist uh, and xenophobic uh, political forces? And, of course, the truth is the latter. Uh, and the suggestion that those who were for Remain were all this bunch of uh, progressive, uh, uh, peace-loving uh, people in favour of equality and fairness. What a load of nonsense. Who were the official financiers of the Remain campaign in Britain? Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, Morgan Stanley and the hedge funds of the City of London. No, they didn't. Yeah, we'll get on to that. But was there any acknowledgement, was there any acknowledgement... Uh, that these people were behind and financing the hugely uh, uh, resourced Remain campaign. And what is their agenda? Is their agenda the interests of the millions across Europe for a better life for them, to protect refugees, uh, to build a social Europe that Deputy Howland says he wants? No, I, I think you must have a case of a, uh, a bad amnesia or thorough dishonesty if you think that's why those people uh, were resourcing the Remain campaign. These were the same people who inflicted absolutely cruel and brutal austerity on the people of Greece, of Portugal, of Spain and of this country. Who insisted that millions of working people and the poor and the least well off and the most vulnerable bore the brunt of the wild gambling and greed and speculation of Europe's super rich. These were the people who resourced uh, the Remain campaign in Britain, and they did so precisely to preserve their interests, to ensure that the European Union continues with policies that protects the 1% of the super wealthy and the financial and corporate elite at the expense of millions of ordinary people uh, across Europe. That is the truth. Uh, and, of course, that is the key reason why there has been a revolt against the EU and its policies that is not uniquely British, uh, but that we have seen with massive mobilisations in Greece, 
in Spain, in Portugal, in Italy, in this country uh, against the cruel austerity policies that the European Union has imposed on them. And a European Union that has shown an utter contempt for democracy. Again, uh, manifested today as we speak with the European Commission, an unelected body saying that they don't care what democratic mandate this House has or what democratic decision was made by the Irish people in the last election on the issue of water charges. We are simply, they say, not allowed to get rid of water charges. Is this the democratic and social Europe that Deputy Howland is talking about? He must be joking. And he must think that the people of this country and Europe are fools. And of course it was that contempt, that patronising contempt for the intelligence of ordinary people that produced the exit, uh, the exit vote. Does anybody really believe that the majority of people who voted to exit are political supporters of UKIP? It certainly wouldn't be evidenced in the uh, election uh, results of UKIP. And indeed, it is highly, highly likely, uh, uh, when we do the detailed analysis of where the vote for exit came, that the vast majority of people who voted for exit are Labour voters. Labour voters. In the poorest working class areas, in the parts of Britain that were devastated by Thatcher's neoliberal policies that destroyed the steel industry, the car industry, destroyed the miners' unions, that inflicted terrible poverty and suffering and alienation on on the people, the majority of people in the the poorest and working class areas. Uh, And this was borne out in any of the Vox Pops, not in any way reflected by a media who wanted to go along with the dishonest narrative of what was at stake and who wanted to present anybody who was for exit as a reactionary xenophobe or a disgusting political opportunist like Boris Johnson. And let me repeat, as far as I'm concerned, Johnson is a vile opportunist who must be defeated. Farage is a vile racist and xenophobe who must be defeated. But it is precisely by addressing the deep alienation and inequality and poverty and unemployment and the disaffection of millions of people in Britain and across Europe with the utterly undemocratic, corporate-dominated, increasingly militarised and increasingly racist European Union. That is how we will deal with the xenophobe and opportunists like Johnson and Farage and for that matter the far right wing and Nazi manifestations of them in other parts of Europe that the European Union's own political failures have given birth to and if we don't realise that we will in fact if we show contempt if we insult the English people for the decision they have made, we are more likely to drive them back into the hands of the right and the racists and the xenophobes uh, rather than direct their justified anger where it should be directed against an increasingly undemocratic uh, European Union, against the policies of austerity that are not by any means unique to the European Union, that were also championed by the Tories in Britain for decades, instigated by Margaret Thatcher, carried on by David Cameron by Cameron, who started the anti-immigrant narrative of the exit campaign, David Cameron. These are the people that Brendan Howland and anybody else who was in the Remain camp are associating themselves with, David Cameron. Uh, 
uh, is that a fair argument? Well, it's as fair as you trying to liken us to Farage. To say you were in the camp of David Cameron and of Citibank and of Morgan Stanley and of Goldman Sachs and of Jean-Claude Juncker, the man who, for example, or the European Commission, who decided to wait until after the Brexit vote to unveil the plans for the European Army. They, they had these plans drafted uh, but didn't publish them until after the vote. Uh, but then the plans uh, are revealed where there's an explicit now commitment uh, from what do they call the global strategy on foreign and security, uh, security uh, policy to move towards a European army. Something supported by Mr Juncker who has said the Europeans would convey to Russia, with, sorry, with a common army among the Europeans would convey to Russia that we are serious about defending the values of the European Union. That's what Mr. Juncker thinks. Or Germany's defence minister who said the European army is our long-term goal. But first we must strengthen... There you have it, folks. I think that's all that needs to be said about the Brexit. Now, what I would leave people with is also a suggestion those who have been or who identify as progressives people who identify as leftists people who just identify as say free thinking individuals let's not continue this very toxic habit of constantly attacking each other in vicious ways okay i've seen it happen with regard to the situation in syria I saw it happen, and I've seen it happen throughout the 2016 election cycle. And now I'm seeing it again with regard to the Brexit. Okay. If, if you have a different view than I do, that's fine. Okay, now, if we both can agree on certain values, and we can both agree that we're coming from the same place, and that we want to truly and genuinely help people. Look, we need to better understand each other's positions. I'm your host, Vince Emanuele. This is Meditations and Molotovs. You've been listening to the Progressive Radio Network. You can find us here every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time.